I mean, if you have a Bible, we're in Romans chapter 3. We'll be uh, reading verses 21 through 31 tonight. So that's the last uh, 10 verses or so of the chapter. We'll uh, recap a little bit what we've covered so far. Uh, we'll, re- we'll begin in verse 19 and 20 in just a few minutes to kind of bridge the gap into this next section. And if you've been with us so far, you kind of understand where we've been and where we're headed, of course. But uh, I want to kind of tie a bow on the first three chapters of Romans because this, pas- this passage, uh, Romans 3, 21 through 31 uh, puts a bow on what we've talked about and it sets the stage for what's about to happen. And and I don't believe there's any greater uh, series of chapters. Romans 4, 5, and 6 are incredible. Um, if If you can read ahead and you can dig into those chapters, I promise you, your life will change if you begin to camp out in those chapters. I think the beginning of that change is tonight. Uh, so if you've, if you've enjoyed the last couple of weeks, uh, we've learned a lot. Uh, we've, we've got a lot of information. I believe over the next couple of weeks, we're going to get a lot of inspiration on top of that. And that's where the change is going to come from in our hearts. So uh, again, this passage is going to put a nice bow on what we've covered. So if you dissect and really inspect the language of the book of Romans in general and as a whole, um, especially the first three chapters, Romans is a very judicial book, as in Paul uses a lot of language that would have been used in courtrooms in the ancient world, uh, which is actually true on many different levels. It obviously is a judicial book in terms of our stance before God, uh, but it's also a judicial book in terms of Paul's language in describing all that. Uh, It's almost as if Paul is a defense attorney for the gospel, if that makes sense. Paul is on trial. Paul is taking the stand, and he's laying out his case before a courtroom, a courtroom that has many different uh, diverse people in it. Uh, He is making a case for the validity and the superiority of the gospel. So in Romans, uh, he is making a case as to why Christianity is the exclusive way to God. And he's also doing some comparing and contrasting with regards to Judaism that paved the way to it and any other religion that may be, uh, measure, may be put up beside it. Uh, Paul is appealing to a very diverse audience and that's the reason that Romans stands out. Um, it's a very general uh, explanation of the Christian faith. If you uh, were to study only the book of Romans and you didn't have any other book of the Bible, you would have enough to know why you needed to be saved, how to get saved, and what to do once you are saved. Uh, Romans is enough to get you in and keep you in and lead you forward, which is pretty incredible, right? Uh, Every book of the Bible is equally inspired from old to new, but Romans is special and it should be on the top shelf of every Christian's um, uh, reading list and continually reading um, this book. Uh, Clearly, Paul was aware, and as the Spirit of God inspired him, clearly Paul was aware that he was putting together something special. Uh, By all means, every book is special, but Paul knew, I believe, as he was writing this book, that he was putting together something that would be used for generations to uh, really be the argument for Christianity. And, And really, Romans is the definitive theological argument for why Christianity is the only way to God, which is a pretty absolute thing to say, but Romans doesn't mince words. And we, of course, as Christians know that that is the case. But if you want to know why that's the case, if you want to have a little bit more information to back up that claim you've heard before and believe, Romans is the book that gets you there. Uh, We're calling this study in Romans 
crossroads, uh, which of course alludes to the cross, but also because it's an intersection. Romans is an intersection of the Old Testament reality, the promises of old, the prophecies of old, the religion of old. Romans is an intersection of the Old Testament reality and the revelation of Jesus. And it's through Romans that we really see the new covenant begin to form and be fleshed out. And again, Romans is going to kind of systematize what it means to be a Christian and what our beliefs are as a Christian. So kind of in general, to sum up where we've been and to kind of help you understand where we're going tonight, Romans takes on and considers Judaism, paganism and Jesus. So Romans says, okay, the Jews have a religion, the pagans have their own religion, but this is what Jesus says, and this is why Jesus is better, and why both Jew and Gentile must come to Jesus, and of course can only be saved through Jesus. So in Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul considers Judaism, he considers paganism, and then he's about to say, but let me tell you about Jesus. And that's why you could say that Romans is really um, uh, the explanation of Christianity in, in, a very, in, in a very systematized level, as in it gives us breakdown. It breaks down what Christianity is all about. It puts into bullet points um, and explains the process by which we discover our need for a Savior, find a Savior, and live in step with that Savior. So, um, on any pastor's shelf or anybody that is really a super um, enthusiast of the Bible and Bible scholarship, um, on any pastor's shelf, you'll find a book uh, titled Systematic Theology. I've got five of them on my shelf, and all of them are about a thousand pages or more long. Um, every pastor, anybody that studies the Bible, um, uses those systematic theology books um, to kind of help understand all the details of Christianity. And the incredible thing about Romans is Romans introduces those systematic points about Christianity. In all of those books that I've studied, that any pastor has studied, that anybody that really wants to dig deep into the basic, to the details of Christianity, um, systematic theology, the, the details of every facet of Christianity, all of it really jumps off of the book of Romans. Romans introduces us to the finer points of Christianity, uh, the, the things that, of course, we as Christians um, kind of know secondhand, all of them find their form and find their kind of, they take shape in the book of Romans. And what Paul does in Romans is he pulls all these different things from all over the Bible and he begins to organize them so that we might have a developed, mature, you know, organized faith that will stand the test of time and go up against and surpass any other um, supposed or proposed uh, religion or, or way to God. You've probably, if you've studied theology, if you've, been, if you've been in church all your life or most of your life, you've probably heard terms like these natural theology, which is the idea that God is revealed through nature, that God reveals himself, whether you are in church or not, whether you're you know, surrounded by things that talk about God or not, that there is this natural understanding there's a God. Romans is where that idea comes from or where that idea really takes shape from, Romans 1. The idea of natural law is that we all have a conscience. That's, that's from Romans chapter 2. The idea of total depravity, that all of us are sinners, that's from Romans chapter 3. You've all heard of these terms, 
justification, sanctification, glorification, these steps of the Christian faith. All of those are defined in detail in the book of Romans more than any other book of the Bible. So again, clearly Paul knew he was writing a masterpiece when he put pen to paper for the book of Romans. And all of these terms and many, many more, they find their purest and clearest introduction and are explained in the book of Romans. Now, you can divide up Romans into three sections, the first of which we're coming in into tonight. You could take the first three chapters and you could title those sections uh, Humanity and God as what does it mean to be a man or a woman? What does it mean to be a person in the eyes of God under the rule of God? And how do we compare to God? How do we relate to God? The first three chapters consider humanity and God. And then the next uh, five chapters or so talk about what it means to be, what it means to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus brings to us. And of course, from Romans 9 and on, we understand what it means to be a Christian and live as a Christian. So you could divide up this book, the first three chapters, chapters four through eight, and then nine to the end into these three sections. And we're coming to the end of what I think would be the section that we would call humanity and God, as in what does it mean to be a person before a holy and perfect God? And of course, we've kind of broke that down and understood that and we'll finish off that tonight. In this first section, the focus has been convincing every human, every man, every woman that reads and hears this book. The, The purpose has been while we were created by God, sin has taken us away from God. So that's what the first three chapters reveal to us, that God made us all, but sin has taken us all away from God. God did not desire that we would be separate from him, but sin took us away from him. And Romans 1, 2, and 3 make it very clear that we need to be brought back to God through a means of salvation, that we need to be saved through a supernatural means. Paul's main goal in this first section has been to make every reader aware that their sin, of their sin, of our sin, and make clear that there's only one way back to God. And this is where Paul takes on a pretty complicated challenge. And if you've been with us, you notice that Paul kind of is all over the place. He's talking to Jews on one page. He's talking to Gentiles on the next page. And then he's talking to both back and forth on another page. And that's not, uh, that, that's not uh, you know, uh, far from the truth because Paul has been trying to navigate these challenging waters of talking to a very diverse audience of both Jew and Gentile. Uh, with regards to the Jews, they don't think they need a way back to God because they believe they're already with God. So Paul is trying to convince the Jews that you aren't right with God based on your religion and you need to be saved just like everyone else needs to be saved. And he's trying to convince the Gentiles, even though you've been told that God does not accept you, even if you've been told by the Jews that there's no place for you, there is a place for you and you can get to God the same way the Jews can get to God. So that's why there's this multi-pronged, there's this uh, multi-layered approach by Paul. On the one hand, we've seen him deconstruct Judaism as the way to God. As in, he basically said, if you think that Judaism or religion, a religious system, if you think you can get to God through a religion, through something that you do, that's not going to work. And he's made it clear why that's not going to work. And at the same time, he's establishing Christianity 
that is God's way to us. Christianity, God coming to us, not us coming to God, not us going up the mountain, but God coming down the mountain. He's establishing Christianity as the way for not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. So if you're wondering why there's been a lot of focus about the Jewish religion, specifically its insufficiency, that's why. Because Paul was a Jew, he understood that many of the Jews, like himself, would have a hard time getting their arms wrapped around this, their minds wrapped around this, because they had been taught all their life that their way was the way and that there wasn't anything wrong with it. But Paul, as having been saved, came to them and said, listen, we've got to see what God was doing the whole time. We, we're missing the full picture here. So this isn't to diminish God's covenant with the Jews or his work that he did through them and will still do through them. It's about tearing down this idea that the Mosaic covenant was ever a means for salvation. Paul once thought it was, just like many of the Jews he was writing to did, but he understood now that it wasn't the case and he was trying to convince them that it wasn't the case or any system of religion. It never and should never be understood that way. Paul makes it clear to emphasize that the new covenant was given first to the Jews because it was meant to replace what they already had and they would have been primed to take that next step towards God or finally towards God. So as was predicted and promised in the old, the new covenant was not only for the Jews though, it was for the whole world. Which, is, which shouldn't have been a surprise because the entire message of the Old Testament was that God revealed himself to Israel and through Israel, he would reveal himself to the whole world. Solomon, who of course was the wisest man and one of the wealthiest men and he built a temple to God. When he dedicated the Jewish temple, the place that the Jews thought was their exclusive way to God, that no one else could come in, no one else could get to God. It was only them and it was their holy place. Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, he knew there was something bigger in the works. And tucked in his dedication ceremony, Solomon says this, this is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that, there, that the Lord or that Yahweh is God and there is no other. Solomon said, guys, I know we're having a good time and this is great for us because this is our place and it's our nation and it's our exclusive thing. But this is all so that the world may know. One day it won't just be us that knows, it will be the world that knows which is what the prophets uh, told Israel. That's why they told Israel not to worry when they were taken captive by Babylon because it was God's plan to spread them to the corners of the earth, to spread his fame and set the stage for what was to come. And of course, after they were exiled, the prophet Isaiah gave them this promise. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. So God said, I'm not just gonna restore Israel that's too small for my plans. My plans are bigger than that. I'm gonna use Israel as a light to or for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So Isaiah promised there's something greater on the horizon, but like we've stated, Paul's issue with the Jews wasn't their unwillingness to share God, uh, but their misunderstanding of their own stance with God. They believed in a kind of self-righteousness, a little bit of their own, by their heritage, a little bit by their own merit. 
But as we've seen emphatically stated and snubbed by Paul, righteousness is not something that anyone can achieve by their own works. So Romans 1 through 3 has been about dismissing, has been about dismissing that, there, that righteousness is earned and that only Jews were welcomed. So if you want a, a quick summary of Romans 1 through 3, specifically 1 through 3, verse 20, it's dismissing that righteousness is something that you earn and that only Jews are welcome. So, of course, for all of you, I'm assuming most of us are Gentiles in here. If you're a Gentile, this is good news, because if this wasn't true, then we wouldn't even be here. So that's a good thing, right? But also, and I think it's really important for us to hear this because sometimes even Christians who, you know, obviously claim to be saved by faith through grace, we can somehow begin to warp the understanding of righteousness as something that's earned rather than given. And we're gonna be focusing on that most of tonight. So along the way, Paul has answered the questions when then what then was the exhaustive revelation? Uh, what then was the exhaustive revelation of the old covenant all about? And we're going to kind of bridge that gap tonight. Romans 3, verse 19 and 20, he says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So what then if salvation is not earned, if righteousness is not earned, and if it's not only for the Jews, what do we do with the old covenant? What is the purpose of the old covenant? Paul says the purpose of the old covenant was so that every mouth would be stopped. And again, think about this in a legal setting, that nobody would stand up at the, uh, take the stand and begin to say, well, this is what I've done. Look at what I've done. Here's what I can offer. There's nothing we can say. The law was given so that every mouth would be stopped and that the whole world would be guilty. So when the judge is say, you know, says you've got one chance to defend yourself or you're guilty, the law was given so that we wouldn't even try to defend ourselves, so that we would accept that guilty declaration. By the deed of the law, no flesh will be justified. If that was the end of the story, it would be pretty bad, but it's just the beginning of the story. But again, to be clear, the law was never, the law was never about bringing people to God, but revealing to people their distance from and their disability to get to God. And now in Romans 3, 21, Paul is going to begin explaining the plan of salvation. Remember back in chapter one, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to salvation, to the Jew and then the Gentile. So he's been teasing this, hasn't he? He's been saying there is a plan of salvation and it's not through religion. It's not through heritage. It's not through the ways that we thought it was or the Jews thought it was or anybody religious thought it was. He's been telling us that there is a plan of salvation. The thesis is that there is a way to God and that it's through the righteousness of God. And, and back in chapter one, we we're told that we are unrighteous. Remember, it says the, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, all ungodly, which is us. We're ungodly, we're unrighteous, that we don't bring anything but sin to God. So this next section is where finally the payoff of all that has been said, the condemnation, 
the guilt. Finally, we see what's next. Now, probably your Bible has a heading over the next section. Uh, if, if it doesn't, that's okay because man put that in there. But your Bible probably has a heading that looks something like this. God's righteousness by or through faith, which of course kind of spoils the whole message, which is fine because we're going to hammer this in as thorough as we can. And here's where we really get to the good stuff. It's all been good, but this is so good. The crux of Paul's message as he transitions from this condemnation and this guilt that he's declared over all of us, here's where he's going or here's what his whole message, where his thesis finally pays off. God's righteousness is not something anyone can achieve, which is what we've heard from him so far, right? That God's righteousness is not something anybody, anyone can earn, can achieve, but it's something that everyone can receive. If you cut it off at the ellipsis, then it's bad news. But because that last part, that is the best news, right? It's not something that we work for, that we earn, that we achieve, but it's something that everybody can receive. Look at verse 21. But now, so he's just declared us guilty. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. So the reason why he says, but now apart from the law is because he just said the law served a purpose of showing us that we are unrighteous. But good news, God's righteousness has been revealed another way. Although it was witnessed to by the law and prophets. So he's by, in that statement, he's saying two things. The old covenant cannot save you. But I'm not saying you should do away with it or you should never read it or you should never study it. I'm just saying you should understand its place. Does that make sense? He says, it can save you. By no means should you put any confidence in its ability to save you or your ability to save yourself. Although there is some truth in it and there is some good in it, a lot of good in it actually. So we learned back in chapter one, the righteousness of God is what we need in order to be reconciled to God. Do you hear me? Paul told us that we need God's righteousness in order to be reconciled to God. So the, the religious people thought, well, God's righteousness is something you achieve. If we do the things God says are right, then we'll somehow become righteous. Now, the problem is with that is what Nicodemus came to Jesus about. Jesus, Nicodemus came to Jesus and basically wanted to know the answer, does God grade on a curve? How good is good enough? Because if we have to become righteous by obedience, how much obedience does it take for us to be taken out of the unrighteous column and get into the righteous column? Because the Jewish religion never knew the answer. They hoped they could figure it out. They thought, well, maybe if we, you know, obey God half the time or three-fourths of the time, but there was never any clarity. And even the, even the religious leaders admitted they didn't know what the answer was. But they came to Jesus by night because they didn't want anybody seeing that they admitted that they didn't know the answers to their own questions. But we were told that we need God's righteousness in order to be reconciled to God. And this verse tells us that the good news is it has been revealed separate from legalism or separate from the law. Now, just in case you don't know, maybe you wonder, what is God's righteousness? God's righteousness is God's morally right character, his holiness in essence 
and in practice. So God's holiness as his, care, as his character, his essence, but also in what would God do? In the Old Testament, the law reveals what God would do, and it's contrary to what we do and would do. Now, this verse says that God's righteousness is not clearly spelled out, or is not most clearly spelled out in the law and prophets, although they do point to it. That means that if we're going to find God's righteousness, if we're going to point to something as expressing God's holiness, it's not found in the Old Testament. It's pointed to, but it's not found. Now, it's tempting, it's tempting, and maybe we get a little of this blended in our Christianity. It's tempting to point to the Ten Commandments and say, well, that's God's righteousness, or that's, that reveals God's righteousness, and that tells us that we must do those things in order to be righteous. Maybe you've been taught that. Maybe somebody preached that, even as a Christian. And unfortunately, if that was the case, I'm sorry, but that's not the truth. God's righteousness is not revealed in those commandments. It's pointed to, but it's not revealed in full. There's something better. The prophets warned against disobedience. The prophets warned that judgment would come if there was disobedience. And, and maybe you think, well, the prophets reveal God's character as being you know, indignant and vengeful and you know, intolerant of sin. But Paul says, no, no, no. Yes, that reveals God's character in a little way, but not in the whole way. There's something different. There's something better that needs to be explained. Do you know what's missing in both the law and the prophets? Consider this. What is the end game of both the law and the prophets? What is the end game of the two sections of the Old Testament? Think about the first five books, which is what the Jews call the law. Genesis is part of that section, but really the you know, Exodus and, and on reveals the law and, and details the, the, the you know, commandments of God. How do those books end? How does the first five books of the Bible end? Well, you know how it ends. It ends with Moses, the one who got the law, the one who gave the law, the one who enforced the law. What happens to Moses in the last chapter of Deuteronomy? He dies. He gets taken to the top of the mountain. He gets to see the promised land, but he dies. And you know what Deuteronomy makes clear for us to know? Moses didn't die of old age. He didn't die of a sickness. It says there he was perfect in health. He could see as clear as anybody across the valley. Moses died because that was to prove to us that nobody gets into the promised land by works of the law. Moses, the one who gave it, the one who taught it, the one who declared it, died just outside the promised land. How does the prophets end? It ends with the nation of Israel falling apart. David's dynasty fails. The temple burns. The nation is taken captive. Don't you think there's something significant in that? The end of the law is death. The end of the prophets is death. And Paul says, a more perfect revelation has come. And I think we know what it is. But first, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and upon all who believe, for there is no difference. So that's one one big sentence. Let's read it together. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, witnessed by the law and the prophets. 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So what is Paul telling us here? Twofold. God's righteousness has been made known and can be taken home as in personalized. God's righteousness has been made known and can be taken home through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ. God's holy character is revealed in full through Jesus. And we can be reconciled by faith in Jesus. So simply, to simplify that, Jesus is God's righteousness manifested and transferred. So if somebody says, you know, what is the full picture of God? Don't point somewhere any other than Jesus. There's pictures of God. There's pictures of his righteousness. There's little angles of his righteousness. But there's only one full revelation of God's righteousness. And it is Jesus Christ. Flip over with me, put a bookmark here in Romans and flip over with me to to John chapter one because John does it better than I can. He explains it better than I can. He makes it clear as day for us. Jesus is what the Old Testament longed for, but we're not capable of revealing in full that only gave us little pits and pieces of. John in verses 14 through 18 of the chapter of the first chapter, he's gonna basically tell us how Jesus is the full revelation of God. And I want you to pay attention. There's a word that is repeated in this section one, two, three, four times. And that's the missing ingredient from the Old Testament. And I think you'll pick up on that word, but just see if you can, and then we'll talk about it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father. So what does that mean? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the, that's the Greek word tabernacled. So in the Old Testament, God's glory dwelt in a holy place called the Holy of Holies, the innermost section of the tabernacle. Only a certain group of people got to go back there and even get a glimpse of it. But even the ones that did get in there couldn't see it all in full and even when Moses got on the mountaintop he had to put a veil over his face because he couldn't contain it all so what does John say that Jesus is the full display of the glory of God there's no veil involved there's no separation involved there's no holy place versus you know for certain holy people there's no mountaintop versus valleys everybody gets a full revelation of Jesus everyone equally gets to see him That's good news for you and I because none of us would have been allowed in the Holy of Holies because none of us are Levites, none of us are in that group, that family, let alone we don't live like it. Jesus is the full revelation of the glory of God, made known as the Son of God. And what does it say in verse 14, the end of that? What is he full of? Grace and truth. So when people say, well, the Old Testament doesn't tell the whole story, This isn't saying that the truth of God, that there isn't truth, there isn't law, there isn't right and wrong. Jesus is the fuller version of that story. He's full. So it doesn't mean he's half grace and half truth. He's full grace and full truth. Of course, sometimes we don't think those things can mix, but Jesus is the perfect combination. 
John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This, is, this was of he of whom I said, He comes after me, is preferred before me, for he was before me. So John pointed to Jesus. This is John the, the Revelator telling us that this was predicted. Verse 16, of his fullness, we have all received grace for grace or grace upon grace. So what is Jesus doing that the Old Testament could not do, that the Old Testament wasn't able to do? Jesus is pouring out on us the grace of God. We receive it. We don't earn it. Do you see that? Because grace is not something you earn. Grace is something that's given. And grace is undeserving in its nature. For the law, look verse 17. The law was given through Moses, but... And for a Jew to say this, it's pretty preposterous. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So which one do you need? What do you need to be saved? It's the second one, right? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Father who is in the bosom, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has revealed him, has declared him. So what is John saying? Nobody has ever seen God up until this point. Jesus exclusively made God known, revealed God. Nothing else before him did, nothing else after him has. Jesus is the full picture of God, the final picture of God. What is God like? Jesus is what God is like. So what word did we hear repeated again and again and again? Grace, right? Grace upon grace, full of grace and truth. We have received grace upon grace. Now keep this in mind for later. Grace is not just about being pardoned, but grace is about being empowered, which is something that's so key to the righteousness of God. Jesus made known and put into reality the righteousness of God. He lived in a way that revealed God's righteousness. We see God exclusively through and in Jesus. And the way he served God, the way he served people, the way he gave himself for people. What is God's message in the Old Testament? You must bring something to me to somehow cover what you've done. What is God's demonstration in the New Testament? I have brought something to you. And I haven't just brought something. I've brought someone. And I haven't just brought any someone. I've brought my own son. Now more on that in a minute. But notice the big idea here is it's not just the manifestation, but it's the transfer of God's righteousness. God's righteousness is transferred through faith in Jesus for all who believe. We are made righteous by faith. As in, we have nothing to do with it, but we put faith in the one who did it for us. Does that make sense? If you're made righteous by faith, it's, the work isn't done by you. The work is done by somebody that you're putting your faith in. So there's a whole lot going on here. Let's do a little comparing and contrasting. The Old Testament, there's two pillars of the Old Testament. It was faith in the sacrificial lamb that pardoned your sin. And then sin was overcome 
by obedience to the law. So the, the sacrificial lamb got you forgiven and then you were handed the law and if you were able to keep the law, you would overcome sin. But there's some bad news there because notice there's asterisks on both of those. The bad news is the pardon was not a one-time thing. It was an every-time thing. As in every time you sin, there needs to be another lamb, goat, pigeon, or some other animal, ox on the altar, right? You've read Leviticus before. I know you have. Hopefully you don't read it every night because it might be a little bit hard to sleep after you read that. But if you've read any of it before, every time you sinned, another lamb had to go on the altar. There was lambs that died in April. There were lambs that died in September. There were lambs that died every Saturday. Every time you sinned, another lamb had to die. What if you kept on sinning? Well, you kept on sacrificing. And oh, by the way, sin could not be overcome by obedience because obedience was always hindered by sin. The idea was that, well, once you stop sinning, you don't have to go back and keep sacrificing. But nobody stopped sinning. Nobody could stop sinning. And that's where the New Testament comes in. Faith in Jesus pardons our sin. And how many times did Jesus have to die? Once and for all, and he forgave all sin. What kind of determination must have been behind God to provide this kind of provision, this kind of salvation? Nothing but God's love would drive him to do this. Faith in Jesus pardons our sin and sin is overcome. Now, this is a big difference. Not by your obedience, sin is overcome by the obedience of Jesus because what did Jesus cry on the cross? It is finished. What was finished? Sin was finished. Before you ever stop sinning, Jesus stopped sin on the cross because that's what God was looking for, a perfect sacrifice. He overcame sin by his own obedience. Our obedience is made possible by Jesus' obedience because what did his death kickstart? The resurrection. And what does his resurrection kickstart? The Holy Spirit of God. And what does the Holy Spirit of God do? It brings God's grace to our hearts. Where sin once ruled, grace now rules. And grace is more than forgiveness, it's deliverance. And that's what it means to be given the righteousness of God. Faith in Jesus imputes and imparts righteousness. Imputed righteousness means God has written beside your name, forgiven, saved, reconciled, not because you did anything, but because Jesus did it for you. When you put faith in Jesus, God imputes his righteousness to you. But it's better than that. He imparts his righteousness to you. Imparts means he gives you, he transfers to you, he puts in you his righteous nature, his grace-filled nature, his spirit of God changes you from the inside out. Now, Paul is so excited about this. He swings back to the earlier talk when he says there is no difference. So he wants us to know this isn't just for Jews. It's not just for Gentiles. Everybody gets in. Everybody can be saved the same way. There is no difference. No matter what you've done, where you've been, who you are, you can be saved the same way. Everybody gets in. 
through faith in Jesus. There's no difference. But look at verse 24 and, and, and notice that verse 24 is not, there's not a capital letter there, is it? So you back up to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely or all being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So yes, we all have sinned. The law reveals that we all have sinned and we all can be saved by the grace of God. We all have sinned. But Christ died for all and has enough grace for all. Let me make sure, do you read those verses any differently? Verse 22, the righteousness of God revealed through faith in Jesus. There is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are freely justified by his grace through the, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So is that, is that clear? We all have sinned. Who sinned? I've sinned. You've sinned. We've all sinned. But Christ died for all and has enough grace for all. 25 and 26, whom God set forth as a propitiation or as our atonement, as our substitute. You know why we, you know why we needed a substitute? Because we weren't able to do it for ourselves. A substitute by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That, that first phrase in 25 is incredible. Whom God set forth. So again, think about a courtroom. God has put forth this for everybody to see. So what did you bring before God? Sin. That's what you brought. What did we bring before God? We bring nothing but sin. But what did God bring? Nothing but grace. Now, if this seems too good to be true, it is, but it's still true. It's too good for us because we have a God who's too good for our imaginations. It's incredible God's response to our sin is a savior. And he asked us to put faith in his provision, to take weight off of yourself. So if there's anything in you that's still bringing something to God, thinking that that's, what, that's what's gonna please God, that's what's gonna make God happy, God is saying, please stop doing that. You're hurting yourself. You're stopping yourself short of what I want to give you. And you can never change yourself. You're not gonna make yourself any better or make yourself any more righteous. You can't do that. We confess our inability, rely on his ability, and that's what God says is, that's what God declares is how we're saved. It says there that God's righteousness is demonstrated through his forbearance. We often emphasize how God is impatient towards sinners, but isn't the gospel the story of God's patience with sinners? And it reveals God's holiness in a way that maybe you've never saw before. God's righteousness is revealed in the life of Jesus. He took responsibility for a mess he didn't make. What happens when your kids make a mess that they aren't able to clean up? Do you stand there and wait for them to clean it up, even when they have no ability to clean it up? If you found your child 
sitting in the pile of broken glass, cut up in the process? Would you say to them, please clean up your mess? No, you would get the glass off the floor, you would bandage them up, and then you would clean up the mess. Not because it's your responsibility to clean up the mess, because you didn't make it, but because in the mess you see your child that you love more than the mess they made. So do you see how God's holiness is revealed in a way that you might not have ever imagined? God sees us in the mess and God takes responsibility for a mess that you made and God cleaned it up himself. What do you do with that, church? What, 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 what do we do with this good news? I say we declare it's better than we thought it was. And I say we fall before God in humiliation and in adoration because we are not worthy of this. But I also say that we should never come before God with any ounce of arrogance or pride. And we should never look on somebody else with judgment because what did we do to get in? If our testimony begins with anything like I did or I have done, we've already missed it. (laughs) Because I didn't do anything and I haven't done anything. Our testimony should be about nobody but Jesus. Look at verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law or works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? No. Is he, the God, is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles only. So you see how Paul is bringing all these threads to conclusion? We do not boast because we didn't do anything. We aren't saved by law. We're saved by faith. Is it only the Jews? No, also the Gentiles. 30, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised and the uncircumcised by faith. And then he leaves us with a little bit of a cliffhanger. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. We uphold the law because the law is impossible to fulfill through anybody else but Jesus. So if you want to live a life that honors God, it's not going to be by trying it on your own. It's going to be by doing it and learning to do it through Jesus. The law is upheld because Jesus upholds it for us and in us. Church, we must live a life that affirms that there is only one way to God. And there is nothing we can do to contribute to it. We've learned two things tonight that are very important. We have been given an imputed righteousness. You are made whole in Christ. God imputes to you his righteousness. He makes you whole. And you have been given an imparted righteousness. You can live holy through him, only through him, by him and in him. But through him and by him and in him, you can live holy because you've been made whole. But this is not something we do on our own. We do this by faith in Jesus, clinging to Jesus. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. So what does it look like to live by faith in Jesus? It means that we humble ourselves before him. It means that we worship Jesus as God's full and final revelation. It's when we understand the whole Bible through the lens of Jesus. It means that we find ourselves in him and we follow his footsteps. We trust in him and forever turn towards him because there is no salvation in anyone or anywhere else. So I pray that this passage and this message would cause us to cling to Jesus.
He brought us what we could not get for ourselves. He gives us what we do not deserve and he secures us in his blood and in his grace. As we put our faith in him, we find all that we need and have all that we need. That's the good news. It's pretty awesome news, isn't it? I pray it would encourage you, encourage us all to cling to Jesus. And the best news, he's clinging to you. He'll never let go. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus. Thank you for this awesome reminder of salvation, Lord. And maybe somebody tonight uh, has never been saved and, and they want to put their faith in Jesus. They've been trying to bring stuff before you and trying to get rid of their own guilt because of their, by their own works. And Lord, tonight they realize that they need to put their faith in Jesus. And Lord, for even Christians tonight, it's so easy to take our faith out of Jesus and put it back into ourselves. Lord, would you help us all renew our faith and rededicate our lives to you and put our faith anew in Jesus Christ. Help us to trust in him what he's brought us and what he wants to do in us. Lord, thank you for righteousness declared in Jesus, delivered through Jesus, imputed to us and imparted to us. Thank you for this awesome, awesome gift. Give us the faith we need to, take, to make the most of it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.